Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for the worship of spirit, worship in spirit, and worship in truth. And Father, thank you for the men and women who make it possible. And thank you, Father, for uh, this opportunity in our walk. As we each come here at a stage in our life, many other things going on, but for a time and for a season, we've been called together as a body in different capacities. And this is a special moment, Father. Some of us uh, have longed to be in a church like this for a long time. And others of us are just discovering that this is even available. And perhaps some of us, Father, are just curious to see what you're going to do here. But, Father, whatever drew us here, it was ultimately your spirit. Whatever you intend to do here, Father, it is ultimately for your glory. And all of us, Father, are amazed that you could use the, the likes of us to do something eternally good. And we confess to you, Father, we don't have a plan. You do. We don't know what we're doing. Uh, We don't have the expertise or the wisdom. We don't have the power. We don't have the strength. And, Father, as days come, as I'm sure they will, when we'll have more than we can do and we'll have more needs than we can meet or that we feel lost and unable to address uh, all that has to get done, Father, I just pray you'll keep us in your care and resting in you and in your word and the counsel of your word and that we might just trust and know that you have a plan and you were at work long before we knew anything about it. And that's all we need to know. And Father, give us reassurance that as we devote ourselves to the things that you care about, the things you have said should be our focus, that we can trust you with all the other things. Just if we do our Obedient, following, you will take care of the leading. And Lord, also lastly, I ask that as we study tonight, as we hear about the way in which you want us to reach those who need to know the truth, that you would give us a heart of humility and patience, knowing that your work is in your timing, and that we are simply following your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in class tonight, and by that I mean we're, we're back at looking at Jesus as he prepares his disciples in this way of the kingdom program, as I call it. The kingdom program is that mission that Christ gave to the church in which we go out, as he said, as we go, seeking lost sheep with a message that he has given us, proclaiming Christ and his kingdom. And by the preaching of that message, we've learned that the Lord is going to stir a heart here and there to respond, men and women coming to faith in Jesus. That's what we're waiting to find. So in effect, what we've been given, our mission, is to recruit citizens out of this world to join the next, to become kingdom citizens, even in anticipation of the arrival of that kingdom. And that will be our mission, that will be the church's mission, until the Lord returns. Until He returns for us, and then ultimately until He returns to inaugurate that kingdom that we're waiting for. Now in chapter 10... Jesus is training up 12 disciples that he's called apostles to carry out that assignment. And as we learned last time, they are ambassadors for Christ, but they're really just forerunners in that regard because we follow in their footsteps. We're not apostles, but that doesn't mean we don't have a similar mission. And so as we follow them, we too need these lessons. So we're learning what he taught them, and indirectly, of course, we're learning what he's teaching us as well. Now we've reached the third step in the outline that I've been giving you. It's on the back of your bulletin again tonight. That outline is my way of dividing out the six parts that I see in this chapter. Part one, if you remember, was the objective. That is what we're here to do. Part two was the message. That is what we're told to share. And tonight we study part three, which is the method that Jesus gave us 
and gave these men. Now, as we study the method, I want you to keep in mind that Jesus does all the hard work of the kingdom program. All right, this is his work by his spirit. We're just learning to walk with him in that. But like anything else, if you don't know where the person you're following is going, you're going to eventually diverge from where that path takes him. And so that's our goal here is to understand what he does in his way and then how he directs us to follow. Because when it comes to bringing in new spiritual life into existence, that is something the spirit does alone. We are, for lack of a better comparison, we are a spiritual midwife in the process of birthing new spiritual life because the spirit does all the real hard work he's the one who brings life to the heart of the individual we're just there to collect the person at the end of the process we show up at the very end we receive the new life and then we begin a process of caring for that new believer through their own development that's not an immaterial part of the process it's not as though that doesn't matter but sometimes people get too focused on trying to do the spirit's work and they miss the chance to do the work that god actually gave them to do So we're trying to keep that balance as we study. Let's go back to the text. We're in Matthew 10. We're in chapter 10, verse 8. And as I said, we're looking at the method now. Now, last week when we looked at the message, you noticed that we had three parts to the message, as it turned out. And, And forgive me, I'm not creating these out of nothing. But there's three parts here as well. And the first part is in verse 8. He says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. We'll, we'll stop there because I want to take these in turn, one at a time. He, tells, he says to his apostles that as you go on your way in this kingdom program, you're going to have power to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Now, the last time I checked, the job description for an evangelist does not include those abilities. And certainly in the church generally, we don't see this. And it's for good reason, because what Jesus is saying to these men is in keeping with their very unique role in the church. These men were called and commissioned as apostles. And as we've discussed in earlier weeks, an apostle is a very unique position in the church. It came with unique responsibility and unique power. And to remind you a little of what we discussed in the past, every believer in the body of Christ has a spiritual gift. From the moment you believe in Christ, you receive, by virtue of the Spirit coming to indwell you, some supernatural equipping made possible by the Spirit of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Lord assigns to each of us the spiritual gift that He decides according to His will for us. And as you work in your spiritual gift, as you use it, you bring glory to the Lord. And here's how that works. Spiritual gifts glorify the Lord, not because the activity that you do uh, in and of itself is miraculous, but because the achievement, the outcome, is miraculous. Follow me? It's not the doing of it, it's the outcome of it. For example, you could have two people who pray. One prays here, one prays here. One has the gift of prayer, the other one doesn't, but they both pray. When you see the prayer, they're not going to look any different. When you hear the words, one's not going to be more impressive, necessarily. But when the one who has the spiritual gift to pray, prays, they will see different results. God will use that prayer differently, perhaps, than he did in the other case. Or uh, two people can teach the Bible. And both can know it, both can have a a decent gift of oratory, uh, but the teacher who has a spiritual gift to teach will make a far greater impact on their students than the other one will. But in all cases, those are not reflecting the individual. They're a reflection of how God has chosen to work through the individual. I remember a lady I used to work with who had the gift of evangelism. And I could tell because I would talk to somebody and I would give them the gospel. And it went nowhere. She would say less than I said, 
with less emphasis. I mean, it would almost be like, you know, oh, by the way, Jesus. And the person would believe, and it would be like this instant transformation. I'm like, what the? How can you do that? I tried. It didn't work. Well, and she would do this over and over again. I realized, okay, I give up. It's a spiritual gift. God does you does things through you that he doesn't choose to do through me in all the same way. That's not because he doesn't love me as much or, or whatever. It's because he has chosen to make her gift in that area the notable thing that she can do, and that's how she can bless the body of Christ. The miraculous outcome is never a credit to the person. It's evidence of the Lord working through that gift to bring glory to himself. That's what spiritual gifts do in the body of Christ. Others see your gift at work. They recognize, oh my goodness, I couldn't do that in a million years. That must be God. And they glorify God. You just showed up. It was the Lord who did something special through you. As I like to say, availability, not ability. All right? So in that way, spiritual gifts become a a source of edification for the body and glorification for the Lord. Now, why did I go through that background? Well, because it reminds us here that the apostles also received spiritual gifts. That's their part of the body. They got their gift. But the apostolic spiritual gift is special and it's unique, befitting their unique role in the church. That gift included multiple supernatural abilities, some of which you can see listed here, like healing the authority to author scripture. They had the ability, you know, Peter's shadow would be cast on somebody and they would be healed. They cast out demons. They've raised the dead. Paul raised the man who fell out the window and gave him life again. And you may even remember that there were moments when the apostles pronounced judgment on an unrepentant sinner in the church. And uh, in both Peter's case and in Paul's case, the result of that judgment was an instant death in the case of the individual who was under judgment. I mean, we don't do that. Right? We, and some of you are saying, thankfully, we can't. we can't do that. We don't do that. That's not normal. We know that's not normal. Those are not tradition, you know, part of the body in a broad way. They were unique gifts given to the apostles. Now, some people share gifts that are one of the gifts that came with the apostolic gift. You could have someone who has a gift to heal. That doesn't make an apostle. It just means they have that element of the gifting, while apostles had that plus other stuff. All right? So when you see Jesus here in verse 8, turn to these men in step one of the method, and say to them, go out and do these various things I just listed. What are we really hearing him say? He's saying to his apostles, use the spiritual gift you received. Now, in their case, they're doing things that are unique to them because of their gift. But you need to generalize that instruction if you want to apply it beyond this immediate group of men. You need to understand that to them, he said, heal, raise the dead, cast out demons. But to you, you would hear him saying, Use your spiritual gift. So that means he would say, teach, pray, serve, give, help, evangelize. Right? That as you work in your gifting, you are showing the love of Christ to those who you might meet along the way, and it's through those moments that you draw people's hearts to God. You give opportunity for them to show their interest. I want you to think of it this way. It's like a supernatural magnet that draws lost sheep. As the Lord does a spiritual work through you, he's calling his lost sheep through that gift. Jesus describes the effect this way. He says in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. 
You've heard that before, I know, but think of it now in this context. You have Jesus talking about himself as the one who draws men and women to himself, as a shepherd would draw sheep. And he assures us that the sheep that are out there, the lost sheep that we're seeking, they will hear his voice when the time is right, and they will be attracted by it because that's the way that it works. And they will come to him. He will be drawing them. So he does that in a variety of ways. But what you're learning here is one of the ways, perhaps one of the key ways that he does that, is through the witnessing that we give when we minister in a spiritual gift to somebody. So you minister to someone with your spiritual gift. What you're doing is giving that individual an opportunity, that lost sheep, an opportunity to hear the voice of the Lord, of their shepherd, through that moment. And a lost sheep will be attracted by the work of the Spirit in that moment. If, If it is the moment God has appointed, obviously, but it is an opportunity. It will appeal to them, and they will often ask questions. It will cause them to look more deeply at what's going on and who you are. And in that way, when you use your spiritual gift as a part of reaching the world, at times, whenever you can, it becomes a kind of test. It's a test of a heart to know whether somebody is receptive to the gospel message or not. It's an element of the, of the process. Jesus uses this method a lot. Actually, if you look in the gospels with this mindset, you start to see the pattern. There's that moment in John 4 that's maybe the best one when he reaches the well, and there's the woman at the well. And listen to this exchange with this insight. Look at the test that he puts before her, using a spiritual gift. John four fifteen. the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way down here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. You have spoken truly. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Then she goes on. You know what the next thing she says is? Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now that's taken the conversation in an interesting new direction, hasn't it? How did she suddenly go from talking about water to well to wanting to know where's the right place to find God? Jesus used a spiritual gift to minister to that woman. He revealed hidden truth. I guess in our way of thinking, that would be a gift of discernment or of wisdom or knowledge. And he points out in that way that this woman's living in an ungodly lifestyle that is not something that could have been known apart from a supernatural insight from God. And she figured that out. And if you notice in John 4, 19, her immediate response is, I perceive you're a prophet. Right? That is... Basically, she's acknowledging the spiritual gift. She just saw it work. She may not know exactly what to call it, but she's like, you're not just a normal guy, are you? And what she does next tells you about the test here. If she had not been a sheep, if she had not been a lost sheep, if she had been a goat, as we've been calling them, she would have run from that moment offended if she didn't try to slap him. Who knows? But because she's a lost sheep, She heard her master's voice, and she was drawn into a spiritual conversation with Jesus because of what he said, even though what he said was somewhat offensive, even though it was a stern statement. That didn't put her off because lost sheep are instinctively drawn to the Lord by demonstrations of his power by his spirit. Now, whether they act on it in that moment or a later moment, that's in God's timing. But what I'm trying to show you here is the power of it. So what Jesus starts with in the method is you're supposed to use your spiritual gift as part of an overall method in seeking lost sheep. That is, your spiritual gift is like your superpower for finding lost sheep. It's a way to jumpstart a conversation about Jesus. So let's say you have a gift of service. And I know people in here that do. 
If you take your gift of service and use it to serve an unbeliever in unexpected ways, ways that the average person would not have done, that might draw them into a conversation with you. Or if you have a gift of giving in the Bible, well then give to someone who never imagined that they would receive generosity under their circumstances and then watch their hearts soften. Or gifts of discernment, well then speak wisdom into their life in some difficult sort of circumstances and see where that goes. Gift of mercy, gift of healing, gift of prayer, whatever it is, put it to work, show Christ's love to somebody in a way that they wouldn't have expected, that the world does not do, and don't be surprised if they open up in a spiritual conversation when you do that. In fact, not only should you not be surprised, you ought to be prepared for that moment. Now, if you haven't been approaching evangelism in that way, or maybe I should say, if you don't even know what your spiritual gift is, well, you have a little homework to do, right? That's, that now shows you that you've been fighting, as it were, with one hand tied behind your back. Bring that tool out. Let's see what God does with it. That's step one in this method. As you go, going back to what we learned last week, as you go, minister to others in your spiritual gift and let that be a means by which God might draw their attention to God, testing their hearts and opening up opportunity. That leads us to the second instruction. It's also in verse 8. It's at the very end. He says, freely give what you have freely received. That's not tied to the earlier statement about gifts. This is a new command. You know, he's saying to the apostles, I'm sending you out with something. It's something precious. It's something of immeasurable value. It is the kingdom message. And you are to go out and give this to the world freely. You know, the words of life that you have in the gospel, I don't know how you think about it. I hope you have an appreciation for it. It's the way to heaven. Right? It is an explanation for how somebody can be reconciled to a God who created everything. Do you understand the magnitude of what you have? It's the most valuable thing you could ever offer any other human being on earth. Period. Think of it this way. Given what you know now, that is, you know about heaven and hell, and you know what gets you into heaven, and you know what the penalty is if you're not there, you understand the big picture. Okay? Given what you know right now, what would you give for that knowledge? I mean, let's say you had to buy your salvation from God. What do you suppose it's worth to you? What would you pay? How much would you be willing to give for that knowledge? Wouldn't you give everything? I mean, every penny? I mean, if you held anything back, what would be the point? I mean, if you didn't get into heaven, that money is of no value anyway, right? I mean, you would literally give anything at that point if you knew that was the solution. Well, my point is this. Your message is priceless. When you give something of great value to someone else, as you are doing, it's human nature to expect something in return. It's just normal, right? Psychologists call this reciprocity. It's basically a human instinct. Salesmen are taught to use this principle all the time. Did you know that? They understand how you have an inclination to reciprocate kindness. So they'll give a potential customer a free sample, uh, something that you, know, you, you just get for free. You don't have to ask for it. You don't have to spend anything for it. But you know why they do that, right? Because it triggers reciprocity in your heart. If you're going to the supermarket or one of the warehouse club shopping places, right, and you walk up and down the aisles, what do you see going on in the aisles all the time? You know, the lady's sitting there with the little beanie-weenie machine making the hot dogs, and they're handing those out to you as you go by, right? Now, now, think about this. Feel it in your heart. You'll know I'm right. If you take a sample, have you noticed how you feel obligated to buy the product, Right? And you feel guilty for saying no to the nice lady who was nice to you first. And, and, and that's reciprocity at work right there. How many of you... Yeah, okay, I'm going to ask. How many of you 
Wait till she's looking the other way before you take the sample. Come on, who's done that? Come on. She's busy talking to someone and you're like, why? Well, because we all sense this obligation that when someone is kind to us, we're supposed to be kind in response. Now, here's what's going on in Jesus' command. He wants you to be aware of this effect because he doesn't want you to abuse it. Because in the way of the world, when you give something to someone that is incredibly valuable, you do expect something in return. You expect the other person to reciprocate in some way. And if they don't, if they don't at least offer to repay, or at least just offer thanks, you think it's rude, it's ungrateful. They haven't reciprocated. They don't understand how this works. That's how the world works. But friends, that thinking, that natural state of thinking, is counterproductive to the kingdom program. And do you know why? Because when you take that worldly approach to reciprocity, you cause people to refuse your free gift in the first place. Not just the gift of the gospel, I'm talking even the gift of the conversation about the gospel. Even the offer of it. Remember my example of the ladies in the supermarket aisle? Have you ever declined the free sample, even though it's free? Why have you declined it? I mean, you want the beanie weenie, you can smell it. You're hungry. Why do you say no to that? You know why. Because you know the moment you eat it, you'll feel obliged to buy it. And you don't want to spend money on something you don't want. So you don't even engage in the exchange. You just don't have anything to do with it so you don't have to feel the guilt when you don't buy the product. Have you noticed that? That's how strong it is. It works with beanie weenies. Can you imagine it working then with something more significant, like sitting down and having a conversation about God? If they don't want to incur a debt of kindness to you because you make it apparent that you're trying to give them something and it's going to be a big deal and they need to take it from you, People are starting to feel like, well, you know what? I really don't want to get involved in some exchange here. I don't know what you're going to ask of me, and I don't want to put myself in a position to have to worry about that. So now I want you to imagine if we operated with that expectation. that Not that we're going to get paid for it in money. I'm not saying, and there's certainly those out there that will do that, but even if you just think of it in more simple terms. What if you told people that you have a free gift for them, but you meant it more in the way of the supermarket lady? That is, you give people the message, but you kind of put a little thing at the end like, you know, I'm going to ask you to do something when we're done here. I'm going to ask something. You know, you can be very subtle about it and still be throwing this into a reciprocity context and cause the other person to think that there's some deal about to take place in this exchange. And you put their barriers up because they know how this works. Even people who don't know the effect and don't even know what it's called, they know the feeling. And it works against your best interests here. It's like ministries that tell you, and you've heard this, right? You can have our teaching resources for free. Just donate any amount you care. Oh, I get it. Yeah, it's free, but I have to donate some amount that I have to pick. Great, I'm going to pick an amount that's probably higher than you would have asked for, right? Because I don't know what I'm supposed to give you for this, and now I feel guilty. And Look, those friends, those folks know exactly what they're doing. They know that when they used to ask for an amount as a condition of sending it to you, they got nothing. When they made it free and let you pick the amount, they made a ton of money. It's exactly how ministries work. That is why verse-by-verse ministry, for what it's worth, has never asked, never will ask for anything, for anything we do, because we don't want to invoke the reciprocity effect. Because we don't want to give you any reason not to take the material. We don't want to put a barrier between you and the Word of God. We're not going to peddle it. And not directly, not indirectly. If you do that with the kingdom message, friends, people will decline to listen. People are smart, and they know what you're doing. So they instinctively resist free offers if it feels like it's coming with a catch, which is why Jesus says, what you got freely from him, you give freely. 
That is, no strings attached, no expectation of reward. Don't put anything in front of them other than, would you listen? And we all need to understand that. There is no reciprocity in the gospel. Never has been. Jesus did not tell you, you can have salvation freely, but and then there's going to be some way you have to pay him back afterward. You can have salvation free now, but I, I need a percentage of your income. He never says that. Eternal life is free, but you better show up at church every week. That is reciprocity. And unfortunately, there are ignorant or selfish church leaders who have tried to make people think that the Christian experience works that way, right? They put a guilt trip on us, making us think Jesus is expecting us to pay him back for the salvation that we received. And that kind of reciprocity robs us of the joy of serving Christ. Jesus said his burden is light. And we did not coordinate on this, by the way. But I I love that we have the same thought today. Jesus said his burden is light. It's easy. It does not come with strings attached. And we need to remember that. What you receive from Christ is priceless, but it was a gift. It came with a cost, but not your own. How do you put a price tag on that? How do you put any demands on somebody else over that? That's why we want to keep things easy. Receive the word of God freely. Give it back freely. So here's the deal. If you're giving money to the church, or if you're giving service to Christ because you feel some guilt or obligation, please stop. Just stop. Just stop where you are. Don't do any more until you get this settled in your heart. Because if that's why you give your time and treasure, you're serving your own guilty conscience. You're not serving Christ. He says he doesn't want a guilt offering. He says he wants our service done out of, out of love, not out of obligation. He wants us to give out of joy, not out of some kind of sense of, of payback. We want to bless others. I mean, you see the difference in mentality between the two? And it's between you and Christ what you do for him. Just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. If you've been sucked into that guilt mindset at some point in the past, let it go. It's not how Jesus thinks. So as you go out... Don't put conditions on their acceptance or even on their hearing. Just let it be the moment. That's step two, is offering the message without an expectation in return, which leads to step three, verse nine. He says, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. What Jesus says in a nutshell here is go out in a state of dependence and vulnerability. Notice in verse 9, he says, don't take or acquire gold, silver, or copper in a money belt. What he's suggesting here is a kind of living day-to-day, not profiting off of the mission I'm giving you, but not seeking for self-satisfaction or security in any way. In verse 10, he adds, don't take a bag. That's where these other ones come in. Don't take a bag. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take extra footwear. Don't take an extra staff. Why would you take extras of anything? Why do you take extras of anything when you go on a trip? Extra batteries, extra underwear, extra whatever, right? The point is they could take one staff, not two. One set of sandals, not two. The point is operate from a position of vulnerability and dependence. Don't pack everything you think you'll need for every contingency and every possibility in our life. That might be don't try to accumulate some kind of cushy retirement before you agree to go work for God in some new setting. Stop waiting to feel comfortable so that you can do what you want in comfort. Stop waiting to feel secure so you can do something that will inherently require some sense of insecurity. Don't keep trying to have this world and the next. That's our human nature, by the way, is to protect against any possible contingency. Make every possible preparation before you take a step of faith. You see the irony in that, right? You tell yourself, I don't want to become a burden on others. The truth is, you don't want to lose control. 
And as hard as it may be for us to accept, what Jesus is saying to us is work from a state of dependence. Dependence on the Spirit first and dependence on others as needed. And you have to get used to the fact of this. Starting with that, you're dependent on the Spirit. That's kind of part and parcel of this whole program, isn't it? Remember our objective? Finding lost sheep? Well, that's an objective that depends entirely on the work of the Spirit. God has to prepare a heart to be a lost sheep. You can't do that on your own, right? And He has to direct us to them because you don't know who they are before you find them. He has to lead us there, right? So if you aren't comfortable leaning on the Spirit in those things... Well, then you're just going to stumble around in the darkness and you're never going to meet the mission because you don't have a clue on how to do it on your own. The Spirit does not give you the whole plan in advance. He, he doesn't say, here's how you're going to get this done, Steve, over the next 10 years. You live in the moment, day to day, seeking lost sheep, depending on the Spirit to move you in that way. I think that's one of the reasons why modern Christians experience so few miracles, if you will, in their everyday experience is because we're too busy with our goal of self-reliance. We never put ourselves in a position of vulnerability or dependence so that God has to show up, or so we think. Truth be told, He's showing up all the time in your paycheck. You just don't see it that way. You know when you really realize that God is in control of your paycheck? When you don't have one. You know, when you lose your job. But that's how it always is, friends. God has to strip away some of those sources of support that we take for granted and move us out of our comfort zone so that He can guide us into unexpected moments. You remember last week I taught on the message, and we talked about Easter egg hunting again, remember, and about the fact that we just have to go out. God has prepared them for us, right? I got an email uh, this week from someone who's not in our church, but listens online, and this person said this. They said, I thought God had set me aside because I've been struggling through a really long season. Yesterday, there's a story about a woman who was helping the homeless during the recent winter snap by putting them up in a hotel, and my immediate thought was, great, another person that I'm not like. A little bit of self-pity, right? The person goes on. Then I said to God, if you put a person who needs help in my path tonight, I will help them. I was coming out of a restaurant, and a young man asked if I could spare $20 for a hotel. And I said, well, I'll do you one better. I'll pay for your hotel outright. Get in, I'll drive you to the hotel. Then I prayed for safety. <laughs> While driving, I was reminded of Pastor Steve saying that preaching the gospel is like being on an Easter egg hunt. All the work is done for us, we just need to keep looking for the egg. So, I preached the most awkward gospel presentation ever. (laughs) She put periods after each word. I even started with, this is going to be awkward, and launched into my practice three-minute testimony. I tried to be as theologically correct about salvation as I knew how to be. I'm not sure if he was an egg. But thanks to the teaching, the pressure was off and the gospel was preached. And she signed it, a donkey. Probably a reference to Numbers 22. (laughs) And she adds a P.S. I hope I didn't lose my heavenly rewards by publicly stating my good deed. Mm, Too late now. (laughs) I love the spirit of that person, right? Here's someone who just said, all right, I get what you're trying to tell me. It's what I'm supposed to go do. And then you notice the prayer. She had just gotten upset at someone else putting people up in hotels. She says, Lord, I pray for you to send me someone. She walks out, there's someone who needs a hotel. All right, that's a God moment, right, if there ever is one. Those are the moments where you sit back and you go, man, he's real. I mean, I knew he was real, but this is it. I see it here, right? Why is she able to be that in that moment? Why did she have that experience? Because she allowed dependence to come into her life. Now, in this case, he was dependent on her. The other person was dependent on her. But it doesn't matter who really has the dependence. The point is it brought two people together. 
That's the whole point. God uses dependence to bring people into relationships, people who would have otherwise passed by each other unnoticed. And how many times have you read stories of people who are saved by some chance encounter with another person? A car accident, getting locked out of the house, uh, losing a wallet, package delivered to the wrong home, and then you have to meet the person who really should have got it, and next thing you know, you're talking about Jesus. Though that is if you have a mindset that says this is how God works. God uses everyday circumstances like that to bring strangers together. And it's in those moments that the message of the kingdom gets shared and sheep get found. But if you are wrapped up tight, if you are in your world and you are self-reliant and every contingency is covered, you will never have a conversation with anyone that you haven't planned and purposed and you won't find lost sheep very easily. It's just not how it works. And ironically then, you can go into the mission field too well prepared. At least as far as someone who is unable to be moved by the Spirit through the vagaries and the coincidences of life because of dependence, because of things that aren't quite set up. So friends, here's the way to think about how God works. When you find yourself in an unexpected set of circumstances, like a flat tire, whatever, expect God to use that moment in a miraculous way. Just look for it. Don't get mad. Don't get worried. Get excited. Because the Spirit is about to put a lost sheep in your path, potentially. If you have that mentality, you'll find a lot more. And if you're thinking that way, seeing your dependence not as a burden, but as an opportunity, then you're actually living out the kingdom method all the time. You don't have to wait to go to Cuba, you know, or whatever. You're doing it. And here's the second thing to consider. There's a second reason to go out in a dependent mindset. Remember the reciprocity effect I mentioned earlier? Well, there is a way you can put it to work for the kingdom in a healthy way. When you accept a free gift from someone else, well, now the effect works in reverse. It will cause them to expect you to pay them back, even if it's just in a simple gesture. Which means when they give your car battery a jump start or put gas in your tank or buy you a meal or whatever you need in that moment, you now owe them a debt of kindness. And that's when you now have a chance to give them the greatest gift they could ever get. And it works. It works. And it works in the least in the sense that as you say to them, I really want to thank you for your kindness and I, I have something I'd like to give you. I'd like to offer you something that I can give. It's the good news of how you may enter heaven. And you may get through that conversation in whatever fashion to some point. But what I have found and what others will tell you is because of reciprocity, that person will listen when they might not otherwise have done so under other circumstances, at least for a while. Because that reciprocity in them is anticipating this, and they're looking for the exchange. They'll feel a little obligation to let you do your part to say thank you. And that's how Jesus wants you to use your dependence on others. As an opening to start a conversation, taking advantage of their willingness to listen. And it's what he means at the end of verse 10 when he says a worker is worthy of his support. He means first that your reward for your willingness to be dependent, to be obedient, is that it will help you bring people to know him. And they, in turn, will help you through those moments of need. It's, you'll have your thing, they'll get theirs, and it's how the gospel is often spread best. All right. So, the second step is that we go out looking for vulnerability, dependence, and God at work in those moments. And then finally, verse 11, the final step. He says, And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. Now, this step of the method actually bridges us into the next section that I call the result. 
So we're going to look at it briefly today. We'll actually have to look at it in greater detail next week. But we can start with just a basic principle here, and it'll certainly make sense in light of what we've already said. He says, go out, and as you go out, seek the lost. And as you go out and seeking the lost, he says, inquire who is worthy. Now, if you're not careful, you might look at that and say, wait a minute. How can anyone be worthy of the gospel? Well, the word translated inquire there, it actually carries more intensity in the original Greek. The same Greek word is used when Herod says to the Magi, I want you to go and search for the Christ child. The word search there is the same Greek word here. It means to investigate, to carefully scrutinize. You might say, do your homework. Well, what he's asking us to do here in investigating a town or a village or a community or wherever we go is to get a lay of the land. Get a bit of sense of what the work will be like in that area. That is, uh, choose your stopping place with some forethought. Uh, consider your options. Consider what you might encounter with the culture. So in other words, you strike up a conversation in the local coffee house. Would it be better to go to the street corner? What do these people think like? What's their attitude? What's their culture? Uh, what will the law say if I'm out talking about Jesus? What are my ways of getting in and out of the country or getting in and out of that community? It's preparation. Preparation is this step. What Jesus is doing here is he's balancing his earlier statement that we go about our work in a state of dependence and following of the Spirit. He's balancing that with the fact that even as you go out in that dependent way, do your homework before you go. Because, friends, operating in ignorance and without proper preparation is not the same thing as being dependent. That's being arrogant and foolish. And you see this all the time, right? That people think that because they're supposed to let the Spirit lead, that means they don't do anything. It's like just show up and a good thing's going to happen. Well, it's possible because God can do anything. That's not what He's asking of you, though, in Scripture. He's asking that we would be intellectually prepared while dependent on His leading so that we can be wise as serpents and innocent as doves at the same time. So that as you enter into a situation looking for lost sheep, you don't walk in blindly. You don't walk in without some kind of understanding of the culture and the situation. And uh, Those are things that are going to help you. And Jesus is not asking for you to jettison good thinking. You have a brain for a reason. And Jesus says, combine spiritual dependence upon the Spirit and material dependence upon those that you encounter with a careful process of thoughtful consideration. That preparation will help you. Help you avoid danger, help you waste time in in places or in methods that aren't sensible, help your mission. For example, a single woman should not go looking for lost sheep in dark alleys downtown at night. We laugh because it's self-evident, right? But that's an example of giving some forethought to what is worthy, what is a good place to go. A group of teenagers should probably not travel through a war zone in Central America on a mission trip. That's not sensible. That's not a, a smart way to work. The Lord does not give you bonus points for how much danger you expose yourself to in the course of your work. And you just have to look at Paul. Paul did not run headlong into danger. He didn't shirk back from trouble, but he didn't go seeking it. And when it got too bad for him, he got in a basket and he went over the wall and he left. He knew his job was not to die, his job was to minister. And there's a point at which common sense kicks in and says, this is not the time, not the place, not for me. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Perhaps a good example of this is what we heard in the recent news. If you've been following, there was that guy who was killed by natives on the island of North Sentinel, a Christian. And if you read a little on it, based on the reports, at least as I've read, it seems as though he ignored obvious signs that there was no one worthy to receive him there, that it was not a worthy pursuit in his case. From what I've been reading, he tried to get on the island multiple times. Earlier efforts, he'd been hit by arrows. The natives had burned his canoe. 
I mean, it's not like he didn't know what was going on. And he persisted until on his third attempt, he was killed on the shore before he said anything to anybody. Now, we don't know what the Spirit was telling him, and I'm not judging him on that basis. I'm just going by what I see in the Scripture. This is not a case of persecution. This is not a case of martyrdom. That is, the trouble didn't come looking for him because of his faith. He went looking for the trouble, and he found it. Paul did not work that way. And Jesus is not asking us to operate that way. I'm not saying there isn't a role to play in trying to reach people like that tribe. I'm just saying you've got to have some sense and preparation about how you go about it. He says, investigate the best way, the best person to reach in the course of your work. Now, there's a lot more we'll say about this when we get to the next part of this teaching. But it leads us into the results next week. But for now, this is my time to leave you with my weekly challenge. You may remember each week I've left you with a little something, uh, how you can serve better in the kingdom as a result of what you learned. Last week, we learned, the first week we learned the objective, remember? And that's when I told you, look, we, we're out there looking for lost sheep, not making goats into sheep. So I just challenged you to live with eyes for eternity. See the world with spiritual eyes. See if God puts a sheep in your path, right? Be sensitive to that. And then last week, we learned the circumstances, calling, and content of our message. And so I challenged you again last week. I said, why don't you go out preaching the truth to somebody who God puts in your path and just see what the message might do, right? And we already heard a testimony of someone who's carried out that very instruction last week. Good for that person, right? So now here's your challenge for this week. Now you've got to have practice getting comfortable with vulnerability and dependence, which means I want you to give me all your money. It's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. No, seriously. Find a way. I'm not saying leave your wallet at home. I'm not, uh, you might leave your phone at home. But find some way in which you are stretched just a little bit to be dependent on the Spirit, not scripted in every moment of your day, planned and thoughtful, but at the same time willing to be led through circumstances. When things change, when the schedule doesn't go the way you want, don't just swear and try to fix it. Stop and say, God, what am I supposed to do in this new moment? What's coming my way that I didn't expect? Look for those moments. Freely give what you've been given. Let's see if we can get a few more testimonies in the week to come. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, change our schedules, Father. Move us into places we haven't been planning to go. Give us opportunities we don't see coming. And as we take advantage of those moments, Father, guide us in every detail. Give us the words to speak and perhaps put someone in our path this week, Father, that as we encounter them, we'll be bold enough to offer them something in in response to what they do for us. Even if it's just a small gesture, Father, I pray that you would make that available so that as we serve you in this, we'd be encouraged by seeing the result. Train us up this way, Father. Thank you, Father, that you do the hard work and that serving you is a, a joy without burden. Help us to feel that so that we would be more encouraged and more likely to do the serving. And we'll come back next week, Father. We'll learn more about what you want us to do and how to do it. Just continue, Father, to train us up for the work of the kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.